the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. Um, welcome. Today we're going to talk about the Didache, which is the... Um, I just want to briefly recap what the Didache is. After Jesus ascended, um, the early church got together on a daily basis and they followed the Great Commission. The Great Commission from Jesus was go and make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So as the early church started getting together, uh, they said we have to teach Jesus' teachings and we need to baptize people. Well, if you were baptizing an adult, um, one of the things that baptism does, besides entering you into the kingdom with all rights and privileges, is it also, it's an outward sign that says you are now accountable to other Christians for the life that you're leading. Uh, you're now accountable to other Christians for the life that you're leading which means that your life is no longer your own. You live in a community of other Christians, and if they see something in your life that you might want to consider looking at, then, then um, they have the, the right, because you're baptized and you're now joined together in the kingdom, they could come and say to you, what I see is not necessarily kingdom living. And, you know, you can talk about it and work it out. And, and you have spiritual fathers and, you know, spiritual directors and coaches and all that sort of thing. And as you grow in your faith, when you're new in your faith, um, your, uh, you know, your understanding of the kingdom is very limited. So uh, you need a spiritual father or mother to direct you in the faith. But then as you grow and mature and become a mature Christian yourself, then you become a spiritual father in the faith and you can lead other people. So, and that's the way that the early church and even the church today works. You have people who are neophyte Christians uh, who are new in the faith, and then you have mature Christians who are very mature in their faith. Well, if a neophyte Christian wanted to be baptized, but they wanted to know something about what the faith is, then the church would do what we today call a catechism or a catechesis, which is just to teach you about the basics of the faith. Uh, and Luther's catechesis, Luther's small catechism, was a Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, um, uh, Lord's Prayer, Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, uh, Holy Communion, Baptism, and Confession Absolution. Those are the six chief principal parts of, of Luther's small catechism. In the early church, they didn't have all that stuff because they their, their early church didn't have the Apostles' Creed yesterday. I mean, back then. Um, and so, and, and the way that the early church looked at the Ten Commandments was they called it the way of life. And we've already looked at that, about how you should live your life. The Ten Commandments, how you, you know, what you should follow. But the early church had a whole different set of things that you should follow. And um, those are all good things. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, things that you should follow, things that you should do. But... But the thing I want to emphasize is that the Ten Commandments, a lot of people think of the Ten Commandments as the things you do and don't do because otherwise it God's, makes God angry at you. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. God doesn't like you operating outside of the Ten Commandments. But God wrote the Ten Commandments because they're a handbook or a guide 
to how you should live your life. That when you live your life with the Ten Commandments, um, it makes your life a lot easier. It makes your relationships easier. It makes your uh, your joy complete. Uh, your relationships with other people, how you interact with the world, all of that stuff uh, becomes better through the Ten Commandments or through the way of life, which is in the Didache. So the Didache then is also a catechesis because it has how you should live. It talks about baptism. Talks about the Lord's Supper. Talks a little bit about confessing your sins, um, and it and it gives you a, a a way that you should live your life. And th- the thing is, is that you can still be persecuted. Uh, you can still have people in the world angry at you when you live the way of, of life. But the interesting thing is, is that you'll have an inner joy because Jesus and His Spirit and God are working through you. So even in, the, in a prison cell, like the Apostle Paul was, he was still filled with joy. He still ministered to his guards and the people that saw him. And they're looking at Paul. It's like, buddy, you're in prison. How can you possibly be filled with joy? And Paul said, I can be filled with joy because even in prison, I can still do the work that God has called me to do in this world. I can be his hands. I can be his feet. Uh, I can love the world around me. Doesn't matter that I'm in a prison cell. Um... You know, you could lose your job as a Christian. It doesn't matter. Hey, I lost my job. That's okay. I can still follow Jesus. I can still, you know, have his command. I I may have less resources. I might have to find another job. I might be in a time of, you know, where it's going to be in transition and turmoil. But that's okay because God's with me. Um, You might lose a loved one uh, and it might crush you. Uh, And there will be a more um, a time of grieving and and re, you know, thinking about your life and all that sort of thing. But but your calling by God in life still goes on. You can still be hands and feet of God. Um, you could you could be you could lose your health and be lying in bed in a, a hospital room uh, or in hospice, and you could still be the hands and feet of God. So how how well you could pray for people in your world? I mean, assuming you have the ability to do so, you could pray for other people. Um, you could you could spend all day in prayer with God, uh, knowing that He's going to fill you. And you know, in my life, I spend a couple hours a day in prayer with God. Um, and when I get to the point when if I'm in a hospital bed or in hospice, and I get to go to 16 hours of prayer with God, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna be pretty happy about that. I can still do those things. Um, the uh, so so anyway. The Didache then is a handbook for how, how the early church taught neophyte or new Christians or people who are new to the faith. These are the basics of the faith. And then after they taught the basics of the faith, uh, then they would baptize them. Um, and baptism can come, uh, you know, baptism is your entrance into the kingdom. Uh, so we now also baptize infants, but as they are infants and they grow in their faith, and we could use Luther small kidism, we could even use uh, the Didache to teach them. These are the things of the faith so that they could grow in their faith. So that's basically what we talked about yesterday um, about, about the, the Didache, about, about what it is. Uh, and so we also started into it in chapter four. I'm just gonna briefly recap chapter four. So uh, let's just dig right into it. This is the duty of the catechumen to the church. My child, thou shalt remember day and night him who speaks the word of God to thee, 
and thou shalt honor him as the Lord. For where the Lord's nature is spoken of, there is he present. So uh, just right here in, verse, in chapter 4, we're now talking about the, catechu- the catechumen. This is the neophyte Christian. This is someone who's learning about the Christian faith. Uh, and when you learn about the Christian faith, typically you have somebody or a number of people in your life that are teaching you about the Christian faith. That would be your spiritual father or mother, your spiritual director, your pastor, somebody in your life that's teaching you the faith. It doesn't have to be your pastor, by the way. It could be your mom and dad. Uh, it could be another Christian. Uh, it could be a mature Christian. It could be anybody that's teaching you about the faith. Well, um, when it says my child, that means that you're a neophyte or a new Christian or whatever. Remember day and night him who speaks the word of God to you. In other words, uh, honor your father and mother, but honor your spiritual father and mother. Remember them day and night when they speak the words to you. Why? Because when you are all together, your, your spiritual director, your spiritual father, you, two or more gathered in the name of Jesus, Jesus is also there. Uh, because Jesus did say, wherever two or more gathered in my name, I'm there also. Okay, so then we go on. Verse 2, And thou shalt seek daily the presence of the saints, that thou may findest rest in their words. So this is also, we saw this in Acts 2, that the early church would gather together daily for the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, prayer, and, and fellowship, uh, and, and you know serving the community around them. And so uh, they did that daily. And if you're a Christian, a neophyte Christian, you should seek daily um, other Christians that you can find rest in their words, that, that as you ask questions about the faith, they can come to you and say, what about this or that situation? And, and you'll find rest because they're mature Christians are going to guide you in the faith. Um, the, the, the Christianity is not an isolated thing. Christianity is you and all the saints, uh, which is all the people in the kingdom, right? And, uh, and you are living together as a community, as an ecclesia, the called out ones. And um, you should seek out other Christians here in the Didache, it says daily. So if you have other Christians in your life, you should seek them out, maybe do a daily devotion with them, maybe talk about Jesus, to talk about a Bible verse or whatever. You should seek that out daily. Now, in the pandemic, obviously we can't get together daily because we're kind of isolated, but, that, but this is seeking out daily, right? This is exactly what the Didache is talking about. Seek out daily the presence of the saints so we're all gathered together to read this and we're learning from it and we're growing in our faith from it. And this this daily getting together is actually something that I'm pretty sure is going to continue even after the pandemic because this is what we should do as Christians is gather together daily around God's word. Um, so that's what we're doing. Okay, now, now we're going to move on to chapter 4, verse 3, which I don't think we, this is kind of where we left off yesterday. This is uh, verse 3. Thou shalt not desire a schism, but shall reconcile those that strive. Thou shalt give righteous judgment, for thou shalt favor no man's person in reproving transgression. Now, this is interesting. Um, do not desire schism. There are people that desire schism. 
And what causes schism in the church? Well, just about anything can cause schism in the church, right? We're humans. And so we're not doing everything perfectly. Um, what's interesting is that one of the schisms that can fall into a church that he kind of touches on here uh, is what is right and wrong. Like, how should we live our life? Um, one of the schisms in the early church was whether or not you should eat food sacrificed to idols. And uh, Paul talks about this. Uh, and basically, Paul says that each person uh, in their situation, that each church in their situation needs to decide what is good or what is bad for their particular area. So uh, if, you are, if you are living in, a, uh, in an area that's predominantly Jewish, uh, and they've never, ever uh, eaten food sacrificed to idols, then that church might say, well, we're just not going to eat food sacrificed to idols. We're not going to burden the conscience of these people. If you're a Jewish person and you've, you're 70 years old and you've never eaten food sacrificed to idols, and all of a sudden Jesus comes along and says, well, I'm, you know, I, because you're now in the kingdom, uh, it is me that's saving you. Well, that's a pretty hard thing to say that it's okay to have food sacrificed to idols. So that's a different situation then where you have a church that's made up of mostly pagans, they've, eat, they've been eating food, sacrificed to idols their whole entire life. Um, they might have a different view or perspective of all that, or it might be a mixed congregation. Um, we're saved by the grace of Jesus and not the law. Now, we all want to follow the law as perfectly as we can because we want to love God. We, we need to have some standards of living. Uh, and so, the early church, they, they argued about circumcision. They ar argued about food sacrificed to idols. Um, they probably argued about whether or not they worship on Saturday, which is uh, the historic Jewish holy day, or Sunday, which is the day that Jesus rose. Um, there was probably a whole lot of things that they argued about um, as far as how they should live their life as they come together as a group of Christians. Um, but it's okay to come together and say, this is what God, this is God, how God's called us. But you shouldn't just desire schism for, for schism's sake. Um, and you should look at the righteous judgments. You should look at things righteously. How does God want us to live? Um, and you shouldn't favor no man's person or approving transgression. The way I read that is that, um, that we're all equal in the sight of God. Um, some of us may be more mature Christians. Some of us are less mature Christians like me. Um, and so uh, we, we, should, um, we should look to those who have the maturity and the connection with God to look for their advice, look through God's holy word, you know, for, for what it says about it. Um, we, should not, we should not favor one person over another if we have two, two mature Christians you know, we should come together, we should work it out, uh, we should live together in harmony. Um, that's basically what a church comes together to do. Um, here today in our church, what's interesting is that um, different congregations, well, you have congregations and then you have groups of congregations that come together. That's typically like a, a synod. Um, and then you have, you know, synods that come together, which, uh, I mean, we just have different hierarchies of different Christian churches. And the interesting thing is, is that each Christian church basically has different things that they focus on. And that's okay, because God's called each congregation, each grouping of churches to focus on different things. 
If you're going to be associated with a church, then you should, um, you know, associated with a group of churches, then you should work together. You know, synod means walking together. You should walk together on um, how those churches interact with the world around them. And that's okay. All that's great. Um, schism is going to happen uh, because that's what happens with human condition. Right now we have schism in denominations, but there's not a schism in the church because we're all one church. Uh, we're all followers of Jesus Christ. So like you think of all the churches in the Tucson area uh, where I live, um, you know, you have all sorts of different denominations, but we all serve the same Savior. We all have different emphasis emphases, um, but we all serve the same, same service and Savior. And it's like, well, how do I know which churches are pure and holy and following God's word and all this. If it's a Bible-believing church, if they believe what God's written in his holy scripture, uh, if, they, if they follow the orthodox faith, which, um, you know, for the first eight, well, for the first 1,054 years of the Christian church, there was no schism whatsoever. And they would come together, all the bishops, from all the different geographical areas would come together and they would discuss what the faith is. And, um, and they would make some decisions about how they're going to teach the faith, who is Jesus, um, what is the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, all these questions were taught about up until 1054. And then in 1054 AD, you had the schism, the great schism, which is the Eastern Church based in Constantinople and the Western Church based in Rome. And they split. And they split over um, whether or not Jesus descended from the Father and the Son uh, or uh, it's, the, it's, it's basically about the creed. I mean, it's basically whether or not um, the Holy Spirit descends from Jesus or if it descends from the Father and the Son. Um, that's basically the the schism i mean that that's the official term but they they were schisming for a long time um because their natural i mean human condition always causes schism but it's only schism in the practice of faith it's not schism according to god because in god's eyes we're all just one church so we create schisms on this earth and we have different denominations and all that sort of thing and we we look at other denominations and all that sort of thing, and we create schisms in our head. But in God's eyes, it's just one church, just operating in different ways. And um, we should look to other churches, um, f uh, yeah, depending upon how the, we interact with those churches, is you know how we look at God's word and how we look at service together and fellowship and all that sort of thing. Um, but I'm not going to get into that right now. All right, so... Let's go on to verse four. Thou shalt not be of two minds, whether it shall be or not. Be not one who stretches out his hand to receive, but shuts it when it comes to giving. All right, so verse four is don't be of two minds, whether it shall be or not. So um, in verse four, we're talking about, uh, whenever I think of two minds, I go back to the book of James, because ba James uh, says, don't be a double-minded person. You know, don't say one thing and do another thing. Um, so here in the church, we really should be unified. We should try to, when you are a mature Christian, 
you can question things about how about the world around you. Like, does God really want me to do this or do that sort of thing? Or how does God want me to live my life? But when you're teaching a neophyte Christian, the church should be somewhat unified. Like mom and dad need to be unified when they're grow, you know, when they're raising their kids. I mean, the kids can't go to mom and say, can I have an ice cream? And she says, no. And then the kid goes to dad and says, can I have an ice cream? Can I have an ice cream? And the dad says, sure, go grab one. I mean, that is not unified in parenting. It, it leads to confusion for the kids. Well, the same thing is true for the church. The church needs to have unified theology and teaching and practice and all that sort of thing within a congregation so that the neophyte Christians that are coming into that congregation, they, they see you know, unity there. But then as they grow in their faith and they, you know, they mature and they become strong Christians, they begin to see that the Christian faith looks different in different denominations. And that's okay. Um, but as they're growing in their faith, you really do want to present a unified approach. So that's kind of how I see that. Don't be of two minds uh, in verse four. And then verse five, do not be one that stretches out his hand to receive, but shuts it when it comes to giving. So this is another part of how to live, uh, how to live in the Christian church is that um, when you come into the Christian church and you have a need and it's a real need and people see that, um, it is okay to stretch out your hand to receive. But don't, don't shut your hand when it comes time to give because everybody can live within their means. Uh, particularly today, everybody can live within their means, right? I mean, we've got all these different programs to help you live in your means. Um, you might have to do some changes to live in your means. It might be difficult to live in your means, but everybody um, should be good stewards with what God has given them. So, and I say this all the time about stewardship, it doesn't matter whether you're a multimillionaire or whether or not you're living at the poverty level. Um, everybody at some level can give of something that they have, some of their time, talent, and treasure to serve God. I mean, that's... And you should because that's where the joy of living is. We are, we are created into the kingdom to give back to service of God. Um, so it, it really doesn't matter um, kind of what resources God's given you because the calling is really to take what resources God's given you and use them in his service. And this is the weird thing. I mean, the... The people just don't understand until they've actually experienced it. But when you use your time and talent and treasure in service to God, um, it, it fills you with joy. It fills you with peace. It fills you with purpose. Um, it completes you as a human being. As, a, as the way that God created you as a human, there's a hole that's missing until Jesus and his spirit comes and fills that hole and says, you're now in my kingdom, now be a soldier in my kingdom. And there's just this, this overwhelming sense of purpose and love and joy and peace and happiness that comes even though you may be giving up time, talent, treasure uh, to people you don't even know or people you don't even like. Um, but you do that and then God still uses that to 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 complete your life, basically. It's, it's the way we were complete. It's the way we were created was to give. Uh, and so you're not complete and whole until you give. But the church, obviously, we know from the early church that people would come to the church, the congregation, uh, if they were in need. 
And the congregation will be very, very careful at looking at those needs and uh, assisting people in those needs. Um, but what it here it says, don't be one to stretch out your hand to receive all the time, but shuts it when it comes to giving. Uh, and I think this isn't an economic thing. <laughs> it's a heart thing. It's like, don't always come and receive. That's not the purpose of the church coming together. The purpose of church coming together is to be the hands and feet of God in a particular location. So uh, I think these are good words from the Didache. You know, uh, this, is for, this is for a catechumen, remember? Um, they're, they're, it's, it's saying don't, don't stretch out to receive, but never, you know, shut when it comes to giving. Remember that God's called you to give also. All right, let's go to verse 6. Of whatsoever thou hast gained by thy hands, thou shalt give a ransom for thy sins. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, now that, that's interesting. Uh, give a ransom from your, for your sins. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The reason why um, I, I, I laugh at that, the word for ransom is lutrosis. It's the payment for the full ransom price to free a slave, particularly the redemption of an individual. Um, so that's lutrosis. And the reason why I laugh is because it kind of sounds like, it kind of sounds like an indulgence, doesn't it? Um, whatever you've gained by your hands, give a ransom for your sins. Uh, if, you'll, if you'll remember... Uh, at the time of the Reformation, there was a thing called an indulgence. And this is Reformation Week, so we can talk about this. I mean, this is, this is what Luther's whole thing was about. Um, in, the early, in the 1500s, the church, one of the ways that you could remit sins or pay the penalty for sin uh, was through paying a thing called an indulgence. And an indulgence was an amount of money that you paid and it sprung somebody from their time in purgatory or it shortened their time. It shortened somebody's time in purgatory. Um, and that is a, a horrid, that is a, uh, well, let me put it this way. It was very, very much abused by the church in the 1500s when they wanted to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome they sent people all throughout the Roman Empire to sell indulgences to build the cathedral in Rome. And people didn't have the money, uh, and yet they, they wanted to spring people from purgatory. And it became just this big economic boom uh, for Rome, but it was fleecing uh, the Roman Empire, particularly where, where uh, Martin Luther was living in Saxony. He was seeing all these people buy all these indulgences with money they didn't have. And it was crushing them. And he, um, he didn't like it uh, because he had read in Scripture that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. And he included indulgences in works. Um, so uh, he, you, Protestant theology is, you know, we, we get our hairs hackled. Um, it stands on end whenever we th see things like this, where it says, when you gain something by hand, give a ransom for your sin, a ransom, like a payment for your sin. Uh, because we know that the only payment that's necessary for sin is Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the only payment for sin. Now, what's interesting is that the indulgences, 
the way that Rome spun that was that, yes, Jesus died and paid a penalty for your sin, but there's still, uh, and that's the right-hand kingdom. In the left-hand kingdom, there's still a penalty that needs to be paid for, for the fact that you did sin. Uh, so, for example, let's say that you um, stole uh, a candy bar from a store, right? Well, you might have to go back into the store and return the ca- candy bar. That's the penalty on the left-hand side to restore a person to, to righteousness, right? But in, in Roman Catholic theology, the way I understand it is that there's also a left-hand payment that's necessary for you to feel whole um, that you've done the right thing in paying for that that's different from the payment on a spiritual side which is that Jesus has redeemed you and you're now in the kingdom. It's like it's like spiritually you're always in the kingdom, right? Because you're you're a child of God. But on the left-hand kingdom, there's always a payment, a ransom that needs to be paid for your sin that's not Jesus for eternal salvation, but it's a ransom for you that turned out to be kind of like this time in purgatory, but most well, all Protestant churches don't follow purgatory because it's not a scriptural, uh, there's nothing in scripture that talks about a purgatory. And so we don't talk in terms of a purgatory, but this is a concept that's not Jesus is saving, you know, that, that you're saved from your sins, but it's like a left, and when I say left-hand kingdom, it's like a, because you're earthly and you live in the world and you sin and uh, like all of our laws that we have in our United States those are all penalties that you must pay for your sin in the left-hand kingdom. Um, and so those are all penalties, but there's also a spiritual aspect to those penalties. Um, you know, the laws that we have on the books here on the United States are kind of like a civil penalty. But when you sin, there's also a spiritual penalty, not because of Jesus dying on the cross, you know, the eternal salvation, but a spiritual penalty, I guess I want to say. And I don't really follow that and I don't have guilt for spiritual for spiritual penalties in the left-hand kingdom for sins that I do because I know that Jesus has has uh, saved me from my sin. But the Roman Catholic tradition teaches that there is a spiritual penalty and so therefore you should give of your of your funds of what God has given you because you can make those payments and that helps in the spiritual penalty for sin, the emotional spiritual penalty for sin, I guess I want to say. Um, so that's the ransom I think that they're talking about here in chapter, in, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. So um, maybe I'll think about that some more. Oh my goodness, it's time to go. All right, so uh, I think we'll end it there and uh, let's close in prayer. Uh, gracious God, thanks for this beautiful day. Uh, thank you for the cold weather that we're going to have all week. Uh, Thank you for this new life. Uh, Keep us ever in your grace until we meet again tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.